Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking about the top-ranked team in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics. So today, I'm here with Robbie McKittrick. And Robbie, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Nick? Doing pretty well. Excited to talk about one of the better teams in the league. And let's get started in talking about one of those better teams in the league by actually not talking about this season at all and going into a quick overview of their offseason and, of course, the highlight of their offseason was the Kyrie Irving trade, which is interesting to put in the context of what it seemed like would be the biggest move of their offseason, which was the Gordon Hayward signing. But instead, they kind of stunned the league a little bit by finagling a trade for Cleveland's star point guard and in the process, sending off their own beloved point guard in Isaiah Thomas. Now, obviously, the trade has looked like quite a boon to the Celtics so far, but what were your thoughts on the trade at the time it went down? Well, I would say first that as a Celtics fan, the free agency um, periods the last couple of years have been frustrating. There have been uh, talks of the Celtics going after Kevin Durant, um, a lot of big free agents Celtics have been trying to go after the last few years, and they just haven't wanted to go to Boston. So that was kind of in the background with all this happening. And then there were talks about Gordon Hayward's last couple of years, and then finally when they were able to sign him, it, there was a ton of excitement in Boston just because really for the first time in a while they were able to attract a big free agent, and really a big part of the reason for that was Brad Stevens. And then after uh, Gordon Hayward was able uh, to get signed by the Celtics and they had Al Horford, that was, a, that was more – a reason to attract another star. And it just turned out really great timing that Kyrie wanted, surprisingly wanted out of out of Cleveland, didn't want to play with LeBron anymore. And the Celtics were kind of the right team at the right time to kind of swoop in and, and take them. And I think having Brad Stevens as a coach was a huge factor in getting Kyrie. But obviously the trades worked out great so far for the Celtics. I think you any fan would, uh, would have to say that. I was really shocked that Danny Ainge wasn't more involved in either the Jimmy Butler trade talks or the Paul George trade talks because the Celtics just had this trove of assets that were perfectly designed for a superstar trade. And when they didn't make one in the early part of the offseason, it was a bit confusing that they were going to head into the next season with sort of a mishmash of Gordon Hayward and Al Horford to older veteran players with past all-star experience, and then the horde of young guys, you know, Jalen Brown and the pick that was originally going to be number one ended up turning into number three and Jason Tatum. But the Kyrie Irving trade sort of solved a lot of those issues by getting a guy on the team who's sort of in the middle between Horford, who's 31, and Hayward, and then Kyrie at 25, and then the young guys. So it sort of made sense in that way, to have someone sort of in the middle of the two timelines that it looked like they were aiming at before that trade. Oh, absolutely. It's a great point. It worked out perfectly for the Celtics. I mean, as you talked about, the Celtics have a really good young core right now, and they're looking, they were rebuilding, but now they're looking to move forward for the future with these young players. And they needed to get a superstar that wasn't in his 30s or even late 20s to really extend this run because although they want to be good soon they want it to be a long run and Kyrie I think is the perfect age to do that and just to get back to Isaiah Thomas yeah he was fantastic with the Celtics he was an MVP caliber player who scored over 28 points a game last season 
And he, all, all, the whole city of Boston fell in love with him. But the problem with Isaiah was everyone knows about his size. He wasn't great defensively, especially that showed in the playoffs. And they really weren't sure if they wanted to pay him a max deal. And at his age, I think he's 28 years old, uh, he's a little bit older to be the centerpiece of a franchise. They're going to have young players coming in from, from the draft. So I think that also um, was a big plus for the Celtics that they were able to get Kyrie, who's 25, not have to re-sign Isaiah, and they got even a better point guard in the deal. So I, I think although they did give up the Brooklyn pick, um, which, which we'll have to see because that was the big piece in that deal, uh, getting Kyrie was unbelievable for them. I've been a huge fan of Isaiah Thomas since back in his Sacramento Kings days, so it's hard for me to really say anything negative about him at all. But Kyrie is just a better fit time-wise for this Celtics team, not just in the sense that he's 25 and Isaiah is almost 30, but more in the sense that Isaiah's contract expires at the end of this season and he was publicly stating that he wasn't going to accept less than a max, and he really earned it by his caliber of play. Now, the hip injury situation certainly seemed a little dicey in hindsight, especially since Cleveland ended up not accepting the original terms of the trade once they were able to give Isaiah a physical, ended up getting an additional second-round pick out of the Celtics. But going back to the Brooklyn pick, the Nets have been not worst in the league levels. Right now, I believe they're actually out of the bottom five. And they're out of the bottom five despite injuries to D'Angelo Russell and Jeremy Lin's out for the year after one game, similar to Gordon Hayward. And Rhonda Hellas Jefferson's also missed time. The fact that the Nets are currently not in the cellar despite all of their injuries is a great sign for the Celtics because that pick that they gave up is probably going to be somewhere closer to the five to 10 range rather than say the bottom three in the draft, like say last season when that Nets pick ended up turning into the number one overall pick. Yeah, it's a good point. Absolutely. And it's, it's really hard to guess. I mean, the Celtics, they now have the Lakers pick after the Tatum trade um, where they moved uh, down to number three and they also got the Lakers pick if they finished between two and five. Um, but the Lakers, they were, they were having a better start in the beginning as well. So I, it is hard to predict with these draft picks, even if you get the pick sometimes, and oftentimes we really look at it. A lot of these times, uh, a lot of these teams don't do great with evaluating players. And a lot of the players don't pan out. You can look at the number one overall picks from a lot of teams in recent years to get a proven guy like Kyrie, who's that young. I think that's a no brainer, especially the uncertainty of the pick and with the team success, as you talked about with Brooklyn. Last point on this trade. Jay Crowder went to the Cavaliers as well as part of that deal. And I've been really surprised by not only how ineffective he's been in Cleveland, but that trading him, which seemed like a loss for the Celtics given Crowder's incredible contract, in addition to his caliber of play, it might actually have helped Boston just to get rid of him. They might be better off with him not on the team. And that's not because Jay Crowder's a bad player by any stretch of the imagination, but because with Crowder in Boston, it's possible that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum might not have gotten as many minutes early in the season as they have. Yeah, it's, it, that's, that's another great point. I mean, in the same can be said for the Gordon Hayward injury, as horrific as it was, it allowed Jalen Brown to get more minutes, more shot, shot attempts, and look how great he's been this season. It's allowed Jason Tatum to start. 
And I think when you look at the overall game of, of Crowder, yeah, he's a good solid player. I think he's a good, more of a good role player for a championship team. Um, but in terms of the Celtics roster, I, you know, although he was successful, I really didn't think he added that much. And I think you really saw in the playoffs where he was really exploited by LeBron and the Cavs. And I think now that you have younger guys who are more talented than Crowder, that was definitely a plus for them in that deal as well. Moving on to the other big trade of the Celtics summer, which obviously was not as impactful as the Kyrie Irving trade, but they traded Avery Bradley for Marcus Morris, basically just to get a little bit more room salary-wise to be able to sign Gordon Hayward to the max deal. And I was really surprised that the Celtics opted to trade Bradley instead of looking at other potential salary shedding moves just because Bradley's best role really is as a defense first guard who can sort of cover up for the defensive weaknesses of the lead point guard around him. And that made him an excellent fit alongside Isaiah Thomas last year. And I would have thought that would have made him an excellent fit alongside Kyrie Irving, who to his credit has improved massively on the defensive end this season. I think Bradley the, the Bradley trade was more of a the Celtics had their hands tied situation more than they wanted to get rid of them. And I think when you look at the Celtics roster, they basically got rid of their whole team from last season. So, I mean, it, it's tough. You'd love to think there are alternatives to uh, to move and to kind of create space for them. But Wick Rosebeck, uh, Celtics team president, the other day was was talking about it. And... They seeing Avery Bradley go was was a tough one for them. It was a tough one for Brad Stevens and the Celtics as they played the Pistons the other day, and Avery Bradley got the better of them, and they wanted the Celtics home court. And you could really see it was it was tough to see Avery Bradley's defense and competitiveness playing against the Celtics and hurting the Celtics and beating the Celtics. And so I think if there was a way they could keep him financial financially wise, they would have. But given that they wanted Gordon Hayward, I, I think they're willing to make that sacrifice. There's the on-court sacrifice with losing Bradley, but there's also the off-court sacrifice. And if you hear any of the young players or even the veteran players on the Celtics talk about Bradley, it's nothing but love for someone who is just viewed as one of those guys that would probably become a Boston lifer and such a great teammate, both on and off the court. Kind of hurts to lose him, but as you said, if you have to make a choice between Avery Bradley or Marcus Morris and Gordon Hayward, it's going to sting, but you're going to take Gordon Hayward and Marcus Morris every time. Yeah, and I think that's kind of how a lot of Celtics fans have, have thought about the transition from last year to this season because emotionally it was hard to get rid of all those players. They the, the team didn't have a ton of talent, but they were the number one team in the East because of great coaching and just great team play, and they were easy to root for. And guys like Isaiah, as we talked about, Avery Bradley, uh, even Kelly Olynyk making big shots, or Jarebko, all these role players and Crowder who played so well together. Danny basically dismantled the whole entire team, and they're a lot better this year. And he absolutely made the right decision. But so you, you know that he did the right thing. But it's always tough emotionally as a as a diehard Celtics fan to see that, and definitely tough to see Avery Bradley in a, in a Pistons uniform the other night. Last point on the overall offseason news before we move into a more specific look at the draft picks. And the one deal I wanted to bring up was the Aaron Baines deal, because when the Celtics signed him, I thought that that was just a perfect fit. They desperately, desperately needed a big man last year who could rebound and protect the paint. And that's exactly what Aaron Baines does. And his 
relatively limited offensive game just doesn't matter as much when you have the kind of scorers around him that the Celtics can put around him. And he sets really hard screens, which are very helpful, especially for someone like Kyrie Irving, who can absolutely destroy teams whenever he gets a little sliver of space to go downhill. What are your thoughts on the Aaron Baines deal and how he's looked so far this year? Like you, I loved the Aaron Baines deal, and you, you just talked about it right there, but the one big piece the Celtics have missed besides really a, a go-to score down the stretch, they had Isaiah, but they've really been missing that superstar, is really a rim protector and a defensive force and a center. And Al Horford, uh, as, as talented as he is, and we'll get into Al Horford later on, he, he's really not as much of a defensive force as, as some other centers in the league and like they really, really need. And Baines provides that. And I, it, I really, he reminds me of Kendrick Perkins back in the day. And he's even better than Perk because he has more of a jump shot from the outside, can shoot it consistently. But just like Perk, he doesn't shoot a ton. He plays good defense. He blocks shots, gets rebounds. And I think he was a real key. Um, and, and really a, just a good piece to complement, as you said, the other uh, scores they have on this team. All right, let's go into the draft. And I want to start, obviously, with the player that the Celtics started with in the draft, Jason Tatum. And moving down from the first overall pick to the third overall pick is always an interesting move, let's just say, and one that can be fraught with a lot of potential issues, just because the difference in career success between the first slot in the draft and the third slot in the draft is really eye-opening. And really, it's just the difference between the caliber of the number one overall pick versus any other pick in the draft. The success of number one overall picks is just that many levels above that of any other draft position. You know, you think about the LeBron Jameses of the world, the Tim Duncans of the world. But Danny Ainge really talked a big game about how he would have taken Jason Tatum number one overall, how that was their guy from the beginning, despite the fact that for pretty much everyone else, Markel Fultz was the consensus top pick. And I don't want to declare anything too early just because Markel's season has really been dogged by this shoulder injury that the Sixers inexplicably made him play through early in the season. But Jason Tatum has looked probably better than any other pick in the 2017 draft, at least so far this year. Tatum was an absolute excellent choice, and Danny's looking like a genius right now. And he basically what he did, he said he was going to pick Tatum. Whether that's true or not, hard to know. But they did seem to love the kid, and I think they loved his competitiveness and just his overall game. And he was very NBA-ready, more so than a lot of the players in the draft. And if you just look at his numbers, shooting percentage-wise, He's shooting 49% from the field. He's shooting 48% from three. He's scoring almost 14 points a game, and that's from a rookie. And generally, in, in the Celtic system, rookies don't often come in, start, and put up those types of numbers. There have been comparisons to Paul Pierce. Paul Pierce has even described him in that way. And I think you really have to be excited, if, if you're a Celtics fan, to have a guy like Tatum. And not only that, but they got an extra pick, the number uh, the, the Lakers pick for next year, they got that in addition to Tatum and pass up on Fultz and Lonzo Ball, which obviously you said it's too early to tell, but it's looking really good right now. And I think the overall game from Tatum, both on offense and defense, and really being a two-way wing player just like Brown has been great for the Celtics so far this season. That's what's really surprised me the most about Tatum is his defense, because he was supposed to be a polished offensive player, and he wasn't supposed to be shooting 48% from deep, but he was supposed to be 
very solid offensive player, knew how to get to his spots, could score from pretty much anywhere on the floor. But he was supposed to be a mess on the defensive end. And how much credit to his solid defense so far this year goes to Brad Stevens and how much of it goes to him, I'm not quite sure. But the fact that Tatum has been passable on the defensive end is shocking because it's always shocking when any rookie is competent on the defensive end but more so because that's where he was supposed to really, really struggle coming into the NBA. I just haven't seen that so far. Yeah, and I'm not really surprised about it. Well, first of all, you look at his length and his athleticism, so there really is no reason why he shouldn't be a good defender, especially if he's covering other small forwards or power forwards. And, but, I mean, if you really look, look at a lot of the Celtics players, I think you really see the impact of Brad Stevens and the Celtics defense and the Celtics culture. Kyrie Irving and Jason Tatum, both from Duke, both really not known as great defenders, uh, come in here and are now playing pretty good defense. Kyrie has has held his own on the defensive end, and I think you have to look at the impact of Brad Stevens, but I really think you have to look at the impact of Marcus Smart and just the culture he's brought. When Marcus Smart is diving on the floor, taking charges, even though he's shooting one for 12 from from the field, it really fires your teammates up, and it, it's hard to be lazy on defense when you have players like Marcus Smart on the team. So I think just the combination of the culture, the, the Marcus Smart, Brad Stevens, and the whole entire system has really um, elevated the defensive games of both Tatum, but also his teammates as well. And speaking of defense, I want to talk about Semi Ojale, who's actually got a pretty surprisingly similar statistical profile to Marcus Smart so far this year. Semi is shooting slightly better, but still only 32.7% from the floor. But the thing about Semi is that he has five-year veteran in the NBA size and body right now. And granted, that's, you know, because he's entering the league at 23 rather than like Tatum entering the league at 19. But Semi is already looking like the kind of player that can switch basically any matchup on the floor, one through four, and maybe even one through five in some smaller matchups. And the Celtics getting him at 37 was kind of ridiculous. I just remember that we did a hashtag basketball mock draft. And when I picked Semi with the 34th pick for the Kings, everybody was saying, for how'd you manage to steal him with the 34th pick? That's ridiculous. You should be going late first round at the absolute worst. And yet here he is falling to the Celtics at 37 and already becoming a really interesting cog in their defensive scheme. Yeah, I mean, he, he has struggled offensively. And I think even the, the very, begin, very beginning of the season, he really was struggling from beyond the three-point line. I think as he settled in, he started making more threes, still only shooting about 29 to 30%. But as you said, on defense, that's really been his key. And I think that's why Brad Siemens has played him, even though he struggled shooting from beyond the arc. And I think, especially even if you look late in games, oftentimes Ojale is kind of snuck into the games and it's because he's been playing solid defense. And I think you really have to look at him as a Jay Crowder type player, give him one or two more years when he's more comfortable making threes. He'll be a more of a small forward type player who can guard uh, some of the best players on the other team, but also hit the corner three. So I really see a Jay Crowder resemblance to me in terms of his, his type of style, his tough playing, his defense, but very impressive, I think, so far. Quickly, before we move on to the next section, I just want to talk about Jabari Bird and Abdel Nader really quickly. Jabari Bird, the 56th pick in this past draft, and Abdel Nader, who was actually selected last year but didn't play in the NBA, instead spent his time in the G League, where he was one of the better players in the G League. 
Now, Bird has played a grand total of 16 minutes so far, so I don't know if you have any specific thoughts on him, but I'm interested in what you think about Nader because he's someone who's sort of been around the Celtic system at least for a little bit longer and has gotten more playing time than Bird so far this year. Yeah, I mean, quickly on Bird, he seems like an athletic guy who's got some length. Obviously, we haven't seen a lot so far. On Nader, yeah, he's been here a couple of years, and he's got some athleticism and some skill offensively. He seems like a stretch four who can attack the hoop, um, but it doesn't seem like he's found his niche so far in the Celtics roster. And if you look at the team, it, it's hard to see where he's going to get minutes this season or really in the near in the future. I mean, they're going to have more draft picks. The roster's... I can't see it changing that much, um, especially just just with their athleticism and their length with the young players. And I, I, that's kind of where Nader can, can, fit, can fit in as an attacker who's a little bit bigger, can play the four. So I think Nader has some talent, but I, I just don't see a role for him really in the future for this team. And it doesn't help that he's even seen the limited minutes he's seen thus far with Gordon Hayward, who's pretty similar position-wise sitting out all but the first five minutes of the season. Yeah, it, it, Gordon Hayward's going to come in. He's going to take up a lot of minutes, as you said. And Nader is kind of kind of out of luck on a team that has a lot of threes threes and uh, twos who are, who are really long and can, and can run, which they really haven't had in the past, so it's a luxury right now. You know, maybe a few years ago uh, when they were filled with a lot of smaller point guards, shooting guards, but, but with this team right now, I, I really don't see a spot for them. All right, let's move from the offseason into the season itself. And now that we're a little over a quarter of the way into the season, I wanted to start just by talking about some of the best and worst games for the Celtics. And it's hard to come up with a worst game, given they've only lost four so far this year. But let's start on the positives and talk about two of their best games this year. And I wanted to start with their... November 16th victory over the Golden State Warriors, 92 to 88. And the thing about that game is that the Warriors are a historically talented offense and the Celtics have gotten to where they are right now, almost entirely on the back of their defense. And ultimately the game turned into a defensive battle played not at the blisteringly fast pace that the Warriors like to play at. And the Celtics' ability to sort of force the Warriors to play Celtics-style basketball, I think, was really intriguing and says a lot about what the Celtics might be able to do in the playoffs. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, anytime you can create the pace of a game, it it really shows the type of team you are because oftentimes the better team can control the game. You you would think that the Warriors, if you're playing them, they would force a high-scoring game because they're the better team and it's hard to stop that offense. But the great system of Brad Stevens and the Celtics defense, they forced it into a low-scoring game, which really says a lot about the team. And the thing I was impressed with, and I think I've been impressed with with this about the Celtics all season, is that they had a big comeback in that game. They were down 17 points at one point. They went went on a 19-0 run. A 19-0 run against the Warriors is absurd. I mean, they can take one three and and make it in a second, and they can can go on a a 19-0 run of their own. But to hold them on a 19-0 run says a lot about this defense, and that just says a lot about the the transition um, opportunities from this team. I mean, I think Jalen Brown showed you a lot in that game. He had 22 points, and he really took over the game, whether it was on rebounding, uh, whether it was on big steals, transition dunks. The fact that Jalen Brown stepped up 
um, as a young player and only his second year against the Warriors and really was the key to that comeback, along with Kyrie Irving, told me a lot, not only about the Celtics' defense, but also about the play of Jalen Brown and where he is at his development. Another excellent win for this Celtics team came on October 30th against the San Antonio Spurs, and the Celtics were starting to heat up. This was after they'd won four straight games following their two losses to open the season. The thing about this game that I thought was most impressive is the fact that the Celtics played this game at a very slow pace, actually significantly slower than their game against the Warriors, but they managed to put up 108 points on the Spurs despite that really slow pace. And it's interesting when a team that's sort of more of a defensively focused team is able to not only you know hold the Spurs to 94 points, but also put up 108 of their own. And on the one hand, this game obviously did not feature Kawhi Leonard, which probably would have limited the Celtics, given Kawhi's incredible defensive presence. But it's always a good sign when you're able to beat the Spurs by double digits. And for the Celtics to do that earlier in their run, I think was particularly impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you, you beat a team like the Spurs and Greg Popovich, it's great. It's great for Brad Stevens. I know uh, Popovich, it was, Popovich and, and uh, Stevens have a little love fest going on, as, as they called many each other during the uh, the interviews going up to the game. But I, I think in that game, you really just see, saw the, the brilliance of Kyrie Irving. And the, really the reason they got him here is, is really be the leader and the scorer. And I think not only did he do it that game for the Celtics, but he's usually done it all season long. All right, from the positives into the negatives, and there haven't really been very many negatives for the Celtics so far this year, but I wanted to touch briefly on the loss that ended their 16-game run. And they didn't lose to a terrible team in the Miami Heat, but this wasn't, you know, a loss against, say, the Warriors or their later loss against the Pistons, where it's like, okay, it kind of makes sense that they would lose to this team. It's one of the other excellent teams in the league. But the fact that they lost this game to Miami and they lost it based on just a really rough offensive game, I think says a lot about how this Celtics team can be attacked. Yeah, it does. I mean, a lot of the players, I think, on the Celtics can be streaky offensively. And I think especially Jalen Brown. You saw it in the beginning of the year where he had a couple of breakout games. He had a couple of games where he didn't score a couple of big ones again. Um, and they have streaky shooters. They got Rozier. They got Marcus Smart, who's as streaky as them all. Smart was shooting about 26% from the field the other day. And then he hit six threes um, against the Pistons. So, you know, they're a streaky team. I think at times they can get um, a little bit stale offensively. Um, but I think in that game, they got in the habit of getting down early. And I think they kept coming back, kept coming back. You know, the Thunder was a big win. They came back in that game. There other games where they, they came back four different times, I think, on their run, or at least in the beginning of, of their big stretch of a win streak. And I think that was the case of you play so many games from behind, and at some point you're going to lose it. And I think that was one of those where they just couldn't come back from that one. Let's talk quickly about the starting lineup for this Celtics team. And I want to focus in on the big man rotation in particular with two big questions. First of all, which two front court players do you think are the best fit for the starting lineup long-term? And on that note, 
is Al Horford at his best as a power forward alongside Aaron Baines, or do you think the team is better off starting him at center and putting smaller players around him? Well, I think to answer your first question, I think they're going to have to get a big guy in the future. I don't think, you know, Marcus Morris and Aaron Baines, those guys are not the future. I can't imagine Baines being here, you know, too many years for this team. They're going to have to get a big guy. I mean, they've looked at Anthony Davis. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about trading for him, but whether it's a big guy in the draft next year, I think Al Horford along with with another big player who's not on the team right now will be the future. Um, But just in terms of best fit for this team, I think it really depends on who they're playing. I mean, defensively, they're much better with Al Horford at the four and Aaron Baines at the five. And you really saw the other day where Al Horford was playing most of the time at the five and Andre Drummond just crushed him. He had about over 20 points and over 20 rebounds. And I think that's where you really saw a case where you could have used Aaron Baines. And I think Brad Stevens deserves um, a little criticism for that, that. I think he should have used Baines more in that game. Um, to play against Strumman. So I think it really depends on the matchup. Obviously, they're better offensively and can stretch the four when Al's at the five. Um, you know, Tatum or Morris might be at the four, uh, depending on who you, who you can switch in, where it throws your and smart. Um, there's a lot of interchangeable parts there where they can make their small forwards into power forwards. That's the best lineup offensively. That might be the best lineup uh, covering uh, covering the Warriors because the Warriors are, are much quicker from the outside and don't play the traditional big man that, too, um, that often. But I think it gets bigger teams – um, they will. They are better overall with Baines at five. All right, moving from the big men into the wing and guards, and we've talked a little bit about Jalen Brown, but I was a big fan of him heading into last year's draft, but even I was a bit surprised when the Celtics took him third overall, and he was solid last year getting minutes for a playoff team, which is something you don't often see for rookies, and this year it looks like he's taken another leap. Yeah, and I, that was the first article I wrote for Hashtag Basketball was about Jalen Brown and really how I thought he'd have a breakout season this year after the few games. And I think there were a couple things that I noticed from the very beginning from Brown that were very different from last year. So first of all, with Gordon Hayward going down, that really made uh, some more time uh, for for Brown to get in the starting lineup and to get shots up. So this this season, he's taking over 12 shots a game. That's second most on the team. Kyrie's taking 17 and a half. Um, but second most on the team in shot attempts. Last year, he only took about five. He didn't get many minutes last year. He only scored about six points a game. But you saw little glimpses of of his greatness uh, in the playoffs against the Cavs. He had, a, he had a great game for the Celtics, scored a lot of points, and was key in, in one of those playoff games. So you, you, you saw um, his ability in, in, in different moments last year. He just didn't get a lot of, a lot of experience um, and a lot of time on the court and a lot of opportunities to shoot. But I think this year as a starter, he's been fantastic. He's been much more aggressive, as I said, shooting over 12 shots a game. He's scoring the ball second most on the team at a rate of 15.6 points a game. He's rebounding six rebounds a game. And I think two areas, um, to wrap up real quick, two areas I think the mo- that I've seen the most development with him is, is number one is his post game. I think when he's been in the post, he's been really aggressive and has noticed that as a shooting guard, he can really attack them in the post. And he, he's been dunking on guys. He's been getting offensive rebounds, putting it back. And then secondly, as I talk about in the article, I think he's been a lot more confident from shooting from three and not just the corner, but from all around the arc. And I think oftentimes in last year, he would catch the ball and wait a little bit, hesitate. Sometimes he shoots, sometimes he won't. Um, but this year, he, he's being aggressive. He's not thinking. He's catching a shoot, especially from the top of the key, um, diversifying his game. And he's, and he's shooting over 41% from three. So I think the all-around game from Brown, and then don't forget about his defense, has been fantastic as well. As, as well. But he, he's been a sight to see. I want to talk about Terry Rogier really quickly, someone who is 
very often aggressive on the offensive end. Per 36 minutes right now, the only players on the Celtics, and I'm removing the five minutes from Gordon Hayward and the 32 from Gershon Yabisele from this sample size, the only players who are shooting more often than Terry Rozier are Kyrie Irving, Marcus Morris, and Jalen Brown. Rozier is tempting more shots per 36 minutes than Al Horford, more than Jason Tatum, and... He's only shooting 38% from the floor, but he's still averaging just under 24 minutes a game. Do you think Rogier's playing too many minutes? Do you think he's playing too few minutes and could capitalize on a larger role? What are your thoughts on Rogier so far this year? Well, not to be too much of a fan of Brad Stevens, but I think he's playing him, honestly, the, the perfect amount of time. I think Rozier in, in moments, in, 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 uh, in minutes here and there is fantastic. And other times, he's a little less consistent. And I think they really need him as a guy off the bench, whether he's a six-man type, whether he's you know another guard to go in with Marcus Smart, to attack the paint and shoot from the outside. Because the second unit, as, been, as has been discussed by, by many people around the team, has struggled to score. And I think the reason why he's shooting so much is that they need someone to be aggressive offensively. And he is shooting around 37% from three, which is good. So I think his outside shooting has improved. And, he, and he's had big games recently where he had 23 points. So I think he's been playing just the right amount of minutes for this team. I think he's been a, a key aggressive scorer off the bench you can attack. And I, I think Yukiks kind of resembles to me as a Tony Allen type player who, who is very athletic and can provide some energy off the bench. All right, let's move into talking about your most recent article on hashtag basketball.com. Again, that's hashtag basketball.com. You should check it out. Anyway, your most recent article was an overview of Al Horford's contract. And I want to start out in talking about Horford's contract by talking about what you saw out of him last season. So what were your thoughts on Horford after year one in a Celtics uniform? So I would say my opinion, as as well as many other Bostonians, Boston fans' opinion out there, was that Al Horford puts up good numbers, but he, he could have been a lot more aggressive and could have put, put up a lot bigger numbers um, because he has that type of talent. So last season, he scored 14 points a game, 6.8 rebounds, 5 assists, 47% from the floor, 36% from three, 80% from the three-foot line. So kind of what I got into in my article was – those seem like great stats. So what was the problem with, with why was everyone criticizing Al? And I talked about uh, some, you know, a media member, Lou Merloni, uh, called him average Al. Uh, people just really didn't see him as a star. They saw him as a complimentary piece. And I, the big thing was they signed him as a max player for four years, $113 million. And they expected a max big man to be a defensive force, a shot blocker, a rebounder, and a go-to scorer in the post. And he only shot about 12 times a game, and people really wanted him to score more. And I guess, and as we're going to talk about, the difference this season is really he's, he's not shooting. He's still not shooting enough. He's still only shooting around nine shots a game, and it's been going down uh, of late, but he's rebounding the ball a lot better. He's he rebounding the ball over eight rebounds a game, which is, a little, which is just less than two of last season. I think that's really been a key so far for the Celtics. The problem with maximum contracts is that you get really good players like Al Horford and Mike Conley on maximum contracts. And then you have players like, say, LeBron, who's worth more than twice as much as either Horford or Mike Conley. But because of the way the salary cap works, he's getting paid basically the same amount. And so 
you get this tier of maximum contract players where they're all getting the same amount of money, but someone like Horford or Mike Conley might be worth, you know, that exact amount. He might be worth exactly, and this is just a thought exercise, but say that Horford is worth exactly four years and 113 million. He's still going to get paid the same amount as someone like, say, Steph Curry, who's a lot more valuable to his team, but because of the way the salary cap works, he's getting a pretty similar salary. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And I think it it creates a lot of anger among fans when they see the max contract. Um, but I think more specifically with the Horford case, not only was he a max contract, but in the offseason, he was the one big offseason signing for this team. And they've been, the Celtics have been talking about how they're going to get a superstar. They need to get more superstars. And that was really who they were banking on, at least for last season, before they got Hayward and Irving. So I think not only was it the max contract deal that made Boston fans and myself frustrated, but it was the fact that he was supposed to be the go-to guy and the go-to superstar, which may have been unfair. But now let me just kind of bring it to this season a little bit more. And I do think he's a go-to superstar. And I, I do think he should still shoot more. And I think recently he has not shot enough. But there was a stretch as when I wrote this article, um, you know, maybe a, a couple weeks ago, where he was shooting the lights out. He was shooting about 49% from three. That, that's gone down to about 43%, which is still great. But he and Kyrie were playing great together. Uh, he was He's still rebounding the ball at a great rate. He's with blocking shots. He's dunking. He's being more aggressive, or at least he was. I'm a little more frustrated now recently. But I think as, as I'll close here with, with this point, but he really reminded me of Kevin Garnett. And that's kind of what I talked about in the article more was this season. And when you look at the stats of KG, it's very similar. Of, of KG's career with the Celtics, he averaged about 15.5 points, 8 rebounds a game. And, and those were kind of Al's numbers. Um, now he's averaging about 13.7 points a game. But a few weeks ago, those were about his numbers. And I think you're really starting to see a guy worth the money and worth to be a go-to big man. At this point in the season, Al Horford is the clear frontrunner for Defensive Player of the Year. And his defense alone, I think, even without all of his incredibly useful complementary offensive skills, his defense alone makes him worth that max contract. And this is something that always upset me when people talked about how the 2004 Pistons didn't have a superstar. They did have a superstar, and his name was Ben Wallace. And... He didn't score a lot. He wasn't really much of an offensive player at all. But ultimately, a 125 to 115 win is a 10-point win just as much as an 85 to 75 win is. And Ben Wallace, at his defensive peak, was taking far more points off the board for the other team than a lot of superstar players would score. And I think it's a similar thing with Horford in that his scoring numbers might not look all that impressive, and part of it is because he's not particularly aggressive on the offensive end, but part of it is also that that just doesn't matter as much when you're contributing as much on the defensive end as Horford can as a guy who can switch basically every pick and roll and always knows where to be on that end of the floor. Yeah, he's, he's the, yeah he's definitely, I think, should be the defensive player of the year this year. He's been great in the pick and roll. He's great at covering perimeter guards when he switches onto them. And, and as, as, as I said, he's a lot better rebounder this season. It, it's hard to be, a, to be known as a defensive force when you're not a great rebounder. And I think that was the case for him last year. But I think he's doing a lot better of a job at this season. And you talked briefly about how Horford has looked different with Kyrie Irving alongside him. But I want to go into that a little bit more just because the trade between 
the Cavaliers and the Celtics seemed a bit like a swap of vaguely similar players in that Kyrie and Isaiah Thomas are explosive offensive players who had reputations as absolute disasters defensively. But Kyrie has not been a disaster defensively this year. And I just wanted to ask you, how much of that do you think is Horford? And on the other side of it, how much do you think Kyrie's game has contributed to Horford being able to be as effective as he has been this season? Yeah, so I think Kyrie first defensively, as I talked about a little bit earlier, I, I think the impact of Horford, I think Smart, I think his teammates, I just think Brad Stevens and, and the whole culture have really helped Kyrie just honestly try because as, as <laughs> I mean, half the battle if you're athletic and you're talented is just trying on defense. And he, he tried on defense when he played for USA Basketball under Coach K, and, and now he's trying again for the Celtics. So the defense is there for Kyrie. And just offensively, for for Kyrie and Horford and, and Kyrie's impact, I think he's been all the difference this season for Al. And I and I close this um, this this part in my article. I have my article with this talking about the impact of Kyrie. And I think the biggest thing with Kyrie that that is different than Isaiah is or is Kyrie's ability to get into tight spaces and then pass out of it, and that opens up more space for guys like Horford or who or whatever team teammates to shoot, and especially a lot of times just with Horford because that's what they're doing with the with the on ball screen and the pick and pop, and a lot of times Kyrie with his masterful dribbling, you're taking on a triple team and passing out of it for an easy jumper for for Horford that's right in rhythm. And when you're a shooter, the more space you have, the more time you have, the more comfortable you're going to be, the more confident you're going to be. And then once you make one, you're going to make a lot more. So I think that Kyrie's ability to have his height at six foot three to be able to get into the into the paint and kick out where Isaiah might get stuck, and it's not his fault. He's small, but Kyrie just has the ability to make his teammates better in, in a way that I think Isaiah did not. And also, although Isaiah was a good passer, I think. Irving's passing ability has always been an underrated skill, and I think you're seeing it here, that he's making his teammates better, but more importantly, he's making Al Horford better. All right, let's talk about the future of this Celtics team before we wrap up, and I want to start by talking about the near-term future, and this is sort of a two-part question, but first, what do you think the Celtics' chances are of being the top seed in the Eastern Conference before the playoffs? And Second, in a related way, how many games do you think this team will win? So I think the Celtics will win, will be the one seed in the East. They were the one seed last year. And as we learned from last year, it really doesn't matter that much who, who the one seed or the two seed is. It's all about the playoffs. And, you know, LeBron and the Cavs, they, had, they were off to a tough start. But as we know, they're, they're going to be probably be the number two seed in the East. Uh, but it really doesn't matter because they're going to be there. Uh, so the, the playoffs is all that matters. They will, I think they will get the number one seed, but just like they did last year, it's all about how you do in the playoffs. And then how many can the Celtics win? So they're on pace for 67. <laughs> I don't think they're going to get 67 wins. Last year they had 53. I think they're going to beat last year's record. So maybe, you know, high 50s, maybe low 60s. So I'll give them uh, 59 wins on the season, I think. <laughs> I was going to say between 58 and 60. So it looks like we're basically in the, <laughs> basically in the same boat on that one. It's just shocking to me that the Celtics outperformed their point differential last year. They won 53, but point differential-wise, they should have been around 48, 49 wins. And they lost arguably their biggest offseason acquisition within five minutes of the start of the season. And yet here they are at 18-4, and and that's after a loss in their most recent game. 
So it's kind of hard to peg where this team's going to end up just because they've already exceeded expectations by such a large margin. Yeah, you know, it's they're looking really good, and they're a lot better than they were last season. I mean, the growth of, of Jalen Brown, the addition of Jason Tatum, the addition of Kyrie Irving, all of those pieces, and then Aaron Baines and Daniel Tice, two more big men, which they really didn't have that, as much of a presence last year. They're much better than they were last year. I mean, last year they lost in the Eastern Conference Finals to Cleveland. And I, I honestly, <laughs> I can't see them beating the Cavs again this year. Maybe they would go six or seven games. I wouldn't be surprised about that. I still don't think they have an answer for LeBron. Um, if they did have Gordon Hayward this year, I think they would beat the Cavs, and I think they would give Warriors a tough series in in the finals. So wait, wait till next season to when Gordon Hayward comes back. But for now, I think they're going to give the Cavs a tough series in the Eastern Conference Finals. But I don't think they can they can beat LeBron. So that actually does lead us into the next question, which is how far do you think the Celtics can go in the playoffs? And Things looked really rough for the Cavs about 12 games into the season, and they've won nine games since and actually seem to give at least some semblance of appearing to try on defense, (laughs) which is more than they had been for the beginning of the season and much of last season as well. But LeBron is not only failing to experience any age-related decline, but He's arguably having his best statistical season ever this year, which is just beyond absurd. And that alone makes it difficult for me to think that anyone besides the LeBron James-led Cavaliers is going to come out of the Eastern Conference. Yeah, sadly, I, I do think that's the case. As much as I can't stand LeBron, he's still the best player in the NBA by far. And I think the thing that is remarkable to me about LeBron, as, as hard it is for me to say, is that he's he's improving in other a, a, uh, areas of his game. I mean, even if he even as he gets older, is going to get a little slower. He's I think he's still going to be very successful because he's he's developed a post game, and he's so big that even as he declines a little bit with his foot speed, like Kobe Bryant did, he really turned into an outside shooter. I think LeBron's going to extend his career with just playing in the post. So I, I think whatever team LeBron's on is going to be a contender for. For, for many years to come. And speaking of many years to come, let's wrap up this podcast by taking a look ahead at what the Celtics might look like a few years down the road. And I picked 2020 for this exercise. And I think that the odds of LeBron James remaining in Cleveland after this season are slim to none. And the minute he leaves the Cavaliers, that opens up the rest of the Eastern Conference for the first time in literally eight years, because if LeBron returns to the finals this year, as we both think he will, that'll be eight straight years of LeBron's team being Eastern Conference finalist, which is just absurd. But given how well the Celtics have played this year without Gordon Hayward, and given that two of their best players in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are 21 and 19, I think this Celtics team is primed to be the cream of the crop in the Eastern Conference in 2020. And their main competitors, in my mind, would be the Bucs, just because Giannis and the Sixers. But the Sixers... I feel like will peak a little bit later than the Celtics. And so assuming that LeBron leaves the Eastern Conference this offseason, I think the Celtics are primed for a pretty solid run over the next two to three years. I would agree with you. I mean, as a Celtics fan, it's exciting because Jalen Brown's only getting better. He's going to be a superstar, probably an all-star in a few years. 
Uh, Jason Tatum is, is only going to get better. They're going to have another high draft pick. He's going to, whichever player they draft, hopefully it's a big man is going to add to the mix. And I think all the, they're going to keep Kyrie. They're going to keep Al. They're going to keep Gordon Hayward. And they may even try to trade for a piece like Anthony Davis or another big man. So I think with Danny Ainge, you never know what he's going to do. And you don't know what type of trade he's looking to make. They're always trying to improve. I know they still think they're one player away. Um, and they haven't really reached that that Warriors type level yet. So I think they're going to keep looking to improve. But as you said, I think the Eastern Conference will be theirs. I, I agree. I don't think LeBron's going to be in Cleveland. Might be a Laker. We'll see. But I think the Eastern Conference will be the Celtics for the taking in, in the next couple of years. If Danny Ainge manages to trade for Anthony Davis and only give up one of Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum in the process, I think that that's the only team that would be able to challenge the Warriors in the next two to three years because Anthony Davis always destroys the Warriors. He's the kind of player that they absolutely can't guard. And if you add Davis to the core of players that the Celtics have, as long as they don't give up too many of their young assets to get him, I think that that's really the only way that any team in the league would have a chance against the Warriors before, say, 2021. Yeah, I would absolutely do that deal. I think I think the Celtics should try to keep Jalen Brown as much as they can. I mean, obviously it depends on the deal. It depends if you're getting Anthony Davis, but I would more be more than willing to give up Tatum, um, a draft pick, whoever else. Throw in Marcus Smart within there if they want him. Uh, his you know his shooting percentage, but he takes charges, so there's that. Um, but you know it'll be interesting to see what they want for him. But but absolutely, if you're getting a guy like Anthony Davis, I would definitely give up Jason um, Jason Tatum for sure. Jalen Brown, you know I. <laughs> I'm a big J- Jalen Brown guy. I think he's going to be a star. I-, I have a hard time giving him up, but it'll be interesting to see what-, what Danny decides to do. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? No, that's it. It should be an, an exciting Celtics season. And uh, the young guys, I'm just, I'm really looking to see how, how Brown and Tatum keep developing throughout this season. So I'll be, I'll be watching. <laughs> All right. Well, he is Robbie McKittrick. You can find him on Twitter at R-O-B-B-Y-M-C-K-I. T-T-R-I-C-K. And you can, of course, find his work on the hashtag basketball website, where you can also find my work. And you can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take a minute to leave a rating or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. Five stars, much appreciated iTunes reviews also much appreciated just because they're the biggest name in the business, but anywhere that you want to leave feedback would be really great. And if you want to reach out to me personally, feel free to send me a message either on Twitter or via email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.